Welcome to The Porch, an online community of believers committed to restoring the priesthood of the believer and regaining the world-shaking influence of the early church. The church age is still in effect. The day of Pentecost is ongoing. The fire of the upper room still burns. This is where we get back to basics, the red-letter basics, by examining the Word of God and the example of the Book of Acts Church to discover how the early church served the Lord. In doing so, we discovered the church the Lord intended and not the one that man created. The Porch on the Air since March of 2010 can only be heard on Firefall Talk Radio, which is a part of the Firefall Media Group. We're glad you're with us. To reach us click the contact button on the Firefall Talk Radio homepage at firefalltalkradio.com. If you want to support what we do there are ways to do that starting with the PayPal link at the bottom of the homepage. You can also use the Venmo app, which is easier to use and has fewer fees, where we can be found under at Firefall Media Group. One word. Uppercase on FMG. Thank you to each and every one of you who support what we do. We appreciate your support and encouragement. Give as the Lord leads. And now, to the Bible study with Richard Grund. Exodus 15.11 says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Psalm 95, verses 1 through 3, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is the great God and the great King above all gods. Well, there is none like him. Not one. Nowhere in the universe. He is the great I Am. He is El Elyon, God Most High. But most of all, he's our Abba Father. So we praise you, Father. We praise you for all that we have. I praise you for my home, for my wife, for my family, sons, daughter-in-laws, my grandson, our furry kids, and everything that you've given us. I praise you for blessing me with them. I praise you for your provisions, your protection over each and every one of us, hiding us in the shadow of your wings. I praise you for the dreams and the visions Although I'd like to sleep a little more, I also know that this is a period of time where you're showing us things and you're speaking to us. So I thank you. I praise you for your healing virtues. They're still available to us. You have not changed. The promises of God are yea and amen, and that includes healing in our mortal bodies, healing in our mind, our soul, and our spirit. I praise you for your favor and divine revelation for being a new creation, for living in these prophetic times, I believe the end times. We praise you for America. Oh yes, there are things wrong, but we get to praise you, we get to worship you, we get to be who we desire to be in you. And thank you, thank you for the signs that you're giving us, that you're getting ready to return. There is nothing more joyous and desirous in our lives than to see you face to face. So we praise you and we get ready. In accordance with Psalm 122, verse 6, we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. Lord, I know your eyes are on Israel. It is the apple of your eye, Jerusalem. The whole world is a part of what you see, but Israel is first. We thank you for blessing them, protecting them. We pray that our Messianic brothers and sisters would be blessed and protected, and those that don't know you yet would come to know you as Hamashiach, come to know you as Messiah. We pray for America. Lord, we're at a crossroads, a very dangerous one. The Republic is at stake. Our future is at stake, and we know that you can protect us and that we know that you can cover us. But, Lord, we desire for you to bless us and have mercy on us. Guide our leaders. Waken your children to prayer, 
and supplication and petition. We pray for justice and righteousness to prevail. We pray for all the evil to be exposed and dealt with. And Lord, as we speak of Hasatan tonight and his kingdom of darkness, we pray that you'd expose it and destroy it. We pray for the fatherless, the widows, the innocents, both in and out of the womb, the victims of injustice. Lord, whether human or animal, we've been such bad stewards of your creation. So we repent, but we pray, we pray, we pray. We pray against the slaughter of the innocents and the, and the sacrifices and the bloodletting and everything that continues to go on in, in disagreement with your word and disobedience to your word. We pray for the missing and exploited children. Oh, Lord, look at this place. Look at the children. They've been abandoned. They've been forgotten. But we say no. We remember and we pray for the victims of sex trafficking and human trafficking and everything that the kingdom of darkness has done to them. Lord, shine the light upon them. Heal them. Rescue them. Pray for our brothers and sisters around the world slaughtered and persecuted for their faith. We don't know anything in America we can complain about not being able to say Christmas or whatever it is, but we don't understand persecution. We don't understand what it means to lay your life down to worship you. We will. So we pray for them. We pray against the religious persecution and the anti-Semitism and the spirit of the Antichrist that grows bolder and bolder and is waiting in the wings for his personal unveiling. And Lord, we pray that you delay that, that you change the plans and delay it. We pray for divine wholeness, health, and continued healing as we get back to our divine design. Each and every one of you I'm speaking to right now in the name of Yeshua. If you are not the way you were designed to be, if this world has done something to you, if trauma or, or, or traumatic injury or illness or the enemy, if you are not the way you were designed to be, then right now I say to you in the name of Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus, the Messiah, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, the one who spoke everything into existence, I say to you, be healed. I say to your DNA, get back to your divine design. Begin to speak to things, not as they are, but as they should be. Begin to speak the word over yourselves. Begin to speak the healing scriptures. Begin to speak the name of Jesus and do it in faith and believe it and receive it. I pray for our protection. Lord, we need it. We're in a fallen world run by the fallen and their demonic offspring. But we're going to stand. We're going to shine. We're going to go and do everything you said do under your Psalm 91 covering. Pray for inspiration, for the fire of the Holy Spirit to rise up in each and every one of us. For the remnant to wake up, the remnant that you've called, the remnant that you've set aside, the remnant that you have trained and prepared for this moment to wake up, to rise up to answer the call to action. And for those that are called to bless, to be a blessing, if you've been blessed, you know somebody that's been blessed, just look at them and say, in the name of Jesus, be a blessing. Take what the Father's given you and bless his children, bless his kingdom. Stop sowing into dead ground. Start sowing into places that want to take the gospel out into the world, destroy the work of the enemy, set the captives free for the doors to open, that we would prosper in accordance with his word, that every dream, every plan, every vision, every mission would be completed, and for our lost family members to be saved, healed, and delivered. Deb in Orlando, uh, my wife has praised for a friend of hers in the UK. Her whole family had COVID-19, but the husband and son got over it pretty quickly. She had a bad bout of it was having breathing problems, had to be uh, hospitalized for a little bit, but she's doing much, much better. And so that's a praise report. On the other side of the spectrum, Junior in Oklahoma gives an update on his mother-in-law, who's still in the ICU. Her levels are not improving. She's told her doctor that she'll try and one, try one more round of treatment, and if it doesn't improve, she wants to be taken off uh, the, the ventilator or the breathing machine, whatever they're using to help her to breathe. Cindy, thanks everybody for their prayers. So 
And Kim is a, in Fort Mitchell has an unspoken prayer request. Father, the, there are people that are hurting. The enemy's done some nasty, sneaky things. We're asking you that you undo it. But Lord, whatever your whatever your decision is, whatever your mercy is, whether to heal them or to bring them into paradise where they're free of whatever it is that they're dealing with, we know that you make the better decision. So that we we leave it up to you. But we ask for peace, the peace that surpasses all understanding. We ask for supernatural abiding peace. And we praise you for it. We praise you for your love. We praise you for being our Abba Father. We praise you for everything that you're doing, everything that you've done. Most of all, for sending Yeshua to die for us. We thank you for that. Yeshua, we thank you, Lord. You did it. You suffered. You bled. They beat you. They ripped your beard out. They tore your skin apart. And you let them do it. We can never forget that. But we also never forget that you're alive. The tomb is empty. You're sitting at the right hand of the Father in fullness and power. And we're allowed to sit with you in the heavenly places. So right now we sit with you. Above the enemy, above everything that they're doing, Lord, we say open our eyes, open our hearts, fill us with your spirit. Bless this word tonight. Let it be what you desire it to be. And I pray all these things in Yeshua's name. Amen. Lessons are proprietary information, except where noted the information comes from outside sources. Combination of that information, the matter presented, is exclusive, cannot be repeated or used without permission. The date of this broadcast serves as the registered date of the following information. We've started every week this way. I'm going to keep doing it until he tells me to stop. In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. As I told you last week, the definition of kingdom from American Heritage Dictionary is a political or territorial unit ruled by a sovereign. It's the eternal spiritual sovereignty of God or Messiah. The Holman Bible Dictionary says kingdom is a sphere of influence. Well, we know God's kingdom has a sphere of influence, that he is the sovereign over that. But there is another kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, Satan's kingdom. And there is a sphere of influence there, and he's the sovereign over that kingdom. So who is Satan? We're going to talk about him tonight, but let me state this as sort of a disclaimer. I'm not one of those people that attributes everything to Satan. I don't think Satan does some of the things he gets blamed for. Why? Because I believe Satan's got his eyes on the prize, and the eyes on the prize is Jerusalem. It's the Temple Mount. That's where his focus is, and everything that will help him do that and get that, when the Antichrist comes into power, that's what he's working on. But he has an entire network of fallen angels and demons that all have their place, all have their powers, all have their influence to help him get the job done. But tonight we're just going to talk about him. First time we see him is in Genesis. In Genesis 3, starting with verse 1. Now the serpent, who is, by implication, Satan, was more cunning than any beast of the field with the the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, 
lest you die. But that wasn't exactly what he said, because if we go back to Genesis 2, verses 15 through 17, it says the Lord God took the man, Adam, Adama, clay, which is what he was made from, put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every true tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And that word die in the Hebrew literally means dying you shall die, or you shall begin to die. A slow, eternal death of body and spirit. So Eve wasn't there when God said that to Adam. So either the message got lost in the translation, Adam told it to her incorrectly, she didn't understand it. But what she repeats to the serpent and Genesis 3 is incorrect, and Satan pounces on that. The serpent says to the woman, you, you will not surely die, for God knows that in that day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise... She took of its fruit and ate, and she gave it to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. When they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Amazing thing about sin makes you want to hide. One of the things I said in the supernatural battle, that in the garden he's called a serpent, which in the Hebrew is nahash, a snake from its hiss, whisperer, a magic spell, an enchanter to use an enchantment. And I believe that Hasatan had the ability to mesmerize with the sound of his voice. See, anything he offers is not of God, is not of the Father. We know that from 1 John two sixteen. For all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, I mean, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And so the world, as we saw in the garden, is characterized by three lusts. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Eve was tempted in those three areas, just as Yeshua in the wilderness is given those same temptations. And what John has given is a short list of the different ways that believers are lured away from God. The lust of the eyes, the sinful, sensual pleasures. The lust of the flesh, rather. The lust of the eyes is covetousness, materialism, and the pride of life is about being proud about elevating yourself. And while Genesis doesn't formally identify the serpent as Satan, we know from Revelation 12, 9, that's who this is. Backing up to verse 7 of Revelation 12, and the war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail. Nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to earth and his angels were cast out with him. So what we know about this being, this creation, is that he is an actual entity, a personal being that's in direct opposition to everything his creator, our Heavenly Father, does and the purposes of God, he is the antithesis of it. He's the mirror image of it. If God is good, he's evil. If God is light, he's darkness. But he's not equal to God. Don't don't ever make that mistake. There's not there's no equality whatsoever. There's no comparison whatsoever. He's no threat to God or his power. Isaiah forty five verses five and six I am the Lord God and there is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you, though you have not known me, 
that you may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord God, and there is no other. Satan is as much a title as it is his name. It means adversary. As I mentioned in the spiritual battle, I believe he had a name. It ended in E-L, like all the others, of God. And since he was considered the praise instrument, the lead praise worshiper covering over God, I believe his name was most likely Hallel, praise of God. But because of what he did and the rebellion that he did, I believe it was declared that his name would never be spoken again, and it never has been. Only what his title is, the adversary, chief of the fallen angels. From mankind's creation, Satan and the fallen angels have been active rebels. They've been terrorists against God. Somehow, we don't know how, but I believe they influenced the watchers of Genesis 6. And although the New Testament teaches that this world is under the power of Satan, he's the god of this world, neither he nor his fallen angels nor their demonic offspring are equals with God, equals with the Son, equals with the Holy Spirit. No, 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 they're far inferior to that. And I make every effort that I can to remind them of that when we confront them. They're creatures, they're creation. We serve the creator. We serve the one who spoke them into existence and they are subject to his sovereign will. The servants of the kingdom of darkness, they may tempt, but they cannot coerce a person to sin. The enemy can make you do nothing but he can influence your decision and get you to make the decision for yourself. And the New Testament's pretty clear that Satan and his kingdom have already been judged and decisively defeated by the death and resurrection of Yeshua. Colossians 2.15, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. He's king. He's Lord. Satan's not. The fallen are not. I don't care how big their rank was. I don't care how tall they are. I don't care how powerful they once were. What resides inside of me and you is the spirit that created them. And we serve the creator. It was one of the first things I realized as I started my walk, as I started my trek in ministry back in the early 90s, that I had the power of the creator over the creation. But just because he's defeated doesn't mean he stopped working. Doesn't mean he has stopped attacking. No, no, no. He's, he's got a task. And the task is to destroy the church. The task is to, to get to Jerusalem and to sit on the mount and declare himself as God from within the Antichrist. He also has another focus. His focus is to get inside the church and attack from the inside. I know that's not an easy topic. Many people don't want to talk about it. But the uh, expression, the devil's in the details, really applies to the church. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, Timothy gives the qualification of overseers. And if you don't know what an overseer is, in the early church, the concept of overseer was the pastor, it was the elder, it was the bishop. They were all one and the same. They all had the job of tending to the flock. It wasn't until the second century that they turned it into some monarchical hierarchy and elevation to a position uh, by offices. So this is First Timothy 3, just 1 through 7. Excuse me. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well having his children in submission with all reverence, because if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? 
not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil." both in verses 6 and 7 in the qualifications of an overseer, two aspects of snares of the devil. For some reason, we can't seem to get this right in the church. So, that's just one of the ways that Satan infiltrates the church to begin attacking people who he can snare with his own sins. See, he doesn't have to be original. We should be thankful he doesn't have an original thought. He uses the same tricks over and over. The sad part is, we keep falling for the same tricks over and over. And pride is the primary source of his downfall, according to 1 Timothy 6 verses 9 through 10, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and it's a many foolish and harmful lust which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. In 2 Timothy brings it up again, chapter 2. Verses 24 through 26, And a servant of God must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth, and that they may come to their senses, and what? Escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. It's always about doing his will. It's always about manipulating an outcome by making others do it, whether through deceit, however he does it, they do it to themselves. The most extensive discussion of Satan is found in Job. Remember, Job is the oldest book of the Bible written by Moses after having been handed down from generations. In Job 1 and 2, Satan appears as an angel testing human beings. And when he appears before God, he comes with the sons of God, the members of the heavenly council. Now, Satan asks God, does Job fear God for nothing? What that means is he doesn't fear you because he loves you. He fears you because he does what he does because he's afraid. He was putting down Job's faith, righteous Job. So in order to disprove his false accusation, God grants him certain powers, certain limitations to attack Job, but he cannot kill him. Interesting story, not a story very many people like, that God would allow that to happen. But the end result was Job's life, although he had lost his children, when it was all over, he was a better man. But the fact is, we're in a fallen world. We're in a world under Satan's control. He has access to us. Wouldn't it be great to hide? Wouldn't it be great to say, nope, you have no place in me and you can't get to me? Well, the only place that happens is when you're in paradise. In Zechariah 3, we see him as an accuser at the high priest's right hand accusing him. And in the Hebrew, when I say hasatan, I mean the accuser, the adversary. So in Zechariah 3, he says, Zechariah says, He showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord has chosen Jerusalem. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? So what Zechariah was seeing was a heavenly courtroom where Joshua, the high priest representing the people of Judah, standing before the angel of the Lord, is being accused by Satan like a prosecutor, accusing him. He broke the law. He did this. He did that. He doesn't deserve your gifts, your grace, your mercy. 
And now don't get confused. This is not Joshua who succeeded Moses. This is the high priest who returned to Jerusalem with the Babylonian Babylonian exiles in Ezra 3. So what we see is we see the same characteristics of Satan in Zechariah 3 as we saw in Job 1. Making accusations. Well, is there a New Testament confirmation to that? Yes, there is. I'm glad you asked. In Revelation 12, verses 9 and 10, the great dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil, was Satan, the one deceiving the whole world, was thrown down to earth with all his angels. And then I heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens, It has come at last, salvation and power in the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to earth, the one who accuses them before God day and night. Now, wherever you are, Satan can't see you. He's not omniscient. He's not omnipotent. He's not omnipresent. But he's got a network of people to squeal on you, to pass back information about you. Just don't give him the opportunity. That's the safest safest thing you could do. If you make a mistake, if you happen to sin, repent. Put it under the blood. Take away his power. But if you don't, he's going to get a hold of it. And he's going to take advantage of it. And it's going to be like a cancer begin to eat away at you. Be humble before God. And so through his minions, he sets us up to be accused. He inspires us to make mistakes and sin. Again, remember, see, we're, 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 we're getting deeper into this kingdom war. So I'm going to start to teach you who the enemies are. I'm going to start to give you a little more detail about the players and how they do what they do. But if you're going to serve in this war, and some of you have very specific callings to what I'm talking about, then you better figure out how the game is played, how the war is fought. You better understand any mistake you may make becomes magnified the longer it stays out in the open. Humility is the key. Repentance is the key. You're going to make mistakes. Accept it. Believe me, I know how difficult that is to accept especially when you should know better. But he's been at this game for thousands of years. Go with me to Matthew 16. I want to show you another aspect of how he uses people, starting with verse 21. From then on, Yeshua began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of the religious law. He would be killed, but on the third day he would be raised from the dead. But Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Heaven forbid, Lord, this will never happen to you. And Yeshua turned to Peter and said, Get away from me, Satan. You are a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view and not from God's. We see that Satan entered Judas Iscariot in Luke 22, 3 to do what he did. Folks, some people are going to want to do good things, but they're not going to be God things. Peter thought he was doing a good thing, but he was interfering with the will of God. When you pray, you better ask the Spirit to show you what the will of God is. You know, we talk about healing, and I, sh- I shared uh, recently with somebody, I've been in situations where I've gone to pray for somebody for God to heal them, and he said no. Very personal situation of a cousin of mine that was like a big brother. His name was Bobby. I've shared him his story in my testimonies and in a chapter of the rewrite of the, the Supernatural Battle, which one of these days I'll get printed or at least as an ebook. And after I led Bobby to Lord, he was um, he was in a hospital dying from HIV. The virus had invaded his brain. It was separating the white and the gray matter. 
And I was pleading for Bobby, saying, Lord, what a tremendous testimony to all the criminals and all the drug addicts and everybody he had known to to take him saved, healed, and delivered. And I was I was really just pleading and crying out for God, laying on the carpet in my apartment in New York. And then I heard the Lord clearly say, I've given him up for corruption, meaning he was going to let Bobby die. And that devastated me, devastated me. But later on, my brother-in-law, John, reached out to me and said, hey, I was praying and I believe the Lord felt it was better and safer to take Bobby home. And I realized he was right. We have to know what his will is in every situation. We can pray, but we must always say, Lord, your will be done. When Satan tempted Yeshua in the wilderness, he was trying to do the same thing Peter and Judas were doing. He was interrupting. He was trying to interfere with what the Father was doing. He was trying to short-circuit the mission through getting Yeshua to commit presumptuous sin. We see that clearly in First Chronicles 21. When Satan tempts King David to take a census of Israel. It says Satan rose up against Israel and caused David to take a census of the people of Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the army, take a census of all the people of Israel from Beersheba in the south to Dan in the north and bring me a report so that I may know how many there are. But Joab replied, May the Lord increase the number of his people a hundred times over. But why, my Lord, the king, do you want to do this? Are they not all your servants? Why must you cause Israel to sin? But the king insisted to take the census. So Joab traveled throughout all Israel to count the people. And when he returned and reported the number to David, there were 1,100,000 warriors in all of Israel who could handle a sword, and 470,000 in Judah. Joab did not include the tribes of Levi and Benjamin in the census because he was so distressed at what the king made him do. Joab was smart enough to know that there was going to be a price for this. And there was. What did David do wrong? He's just counting how many soldiers he has. It would be a simple thing, don't you think? Well... Instead of trusting in God, David was trying to boost his own pride and self-confidence because of the national success he had achieved through his soldiers. And so he took a military census. Satan promoted pride, prompted pride and ambition. And in doing so, David had forgotten how it was God that had delivered him from all their enemies. And even as the census was taking place, David realized that he had made a mistake. The Spirit of the living God convicted him and revealed to him the error of his decision, that his strength was not found in numbers, but in God's mighty power to deliver. It was the hand of God that brought the nation's success and not the arms of men. And by counting the military and trying to be like the other nations of the world, He had put himself at odds with God. And so the census is finished. And then the Lord spoke to David through the prophet Gad. I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself, that I may do it to you. Shall seven years of famine come to you in your land? Or shall you flee three months before your enemies while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days of plague in your land? And David answered, Please let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. Do not let me fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a plague upon the nation, and 70,000 men died. Be careful who you subject yourself to in leadership. Now why? Why did God do this? Why did the Father do this? David's a man after his own heart. He cares about David. 
if he didn't immediately punish David's sin, the entire nation would have then fallen prey to pride. It's like a virus. It would have began to inhabit other people. It would have began to spread. It would have caused unbelief. It would have had them take their eyes off of God and put them on themselves. The people would have followed his example and relied on their own strength. So it had to be immediately corrected. Pride's a weapon against the church, too. For all that is in the world, the lust and sensual craving of the flesh, the lust and longing of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, pretentious confidence in one's resources or in the stability of earthly things, these do not come from the Father, but are from the world. Folks, if you're not paying attention, then you don't see the fact that what we call church is filled with pride. How big are the buildings? How big are the crowds? What do they wear? What do they drive? What do they fly? What do they live in? We've lost our way. Which is why I want nothing to do with traditional religion. Psalm 101 verse 5 says, and this is the Lord speaking, I will not tolerate people who slander their neighbors, and I will not endure conceit and pride. Proverbs 8.13, all who fear the Lord will hate evil. Therefore, I hate pride and arrogance, corruption, and a perverse spirit. Oh, Lord, let that be so in America. Proverbs 11.2, pride leads to disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. Proverbs 16:18 Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Satan is a destroyer. He's a deceiver. And the way he'll take us down is the same way he fell. Matthew Henry's commentary about that Proverbs 16:18 says pride will have a fall. Those that are of a haughty spirit that think of themselves above what is right and look with contempt upon others that with their pride affront God and disquiet others, will be brought down, either by repentance or by ruin. It is the honor of God to humble the proud. Job, Job learned that the hard way in Job 40, 11, verses 11 and 12. He finally cried out, Give vent to your anger, let it overflow against the proud. Humiliate the proud with a glance, walk on the wicked where they stand. I know it may not seem very Christian of me, but in everything that's going on in the world right now, the globalists, those that are trying to destroy America, those that are just trying to destroy us and attacking the church and what we believe, my prayer is, Father, if they're redeemable, save them. If not, destroy them. Walk them down. They're proud. They're boastful. They're arrogant against you. They thumb their nose at you. Show them, Lord. Show them. But a question comes up. What's the difference between confidence and pride? What's the difference between confidence and pride is that confidence is self-assurance, while pride is the quality or state of being proud inordinate self-esteem or unreasonable conceit of one's own superiority and talents or beauty or wealth or position, which manifests itself in uh, lofty errors or being distant or having contempt for others. It's okay to be confident in your abilities through God, but it's not okay to be prideful and arrogant in those abilities, because they're your abilities. No doubt, preachers should preach boldly and lead confidently through the help of the Holy Spirit and the sure foundation of the Word. That's what helps them to do that. But when church leaders begin to rely on their own ability, arrogance builds, especially when a church is growing. And arrogance is the catalyst to start building your own kingdom 
instead of God's kingdom, and that's what we're talking about. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. He's the only king, and it's only his kingdom. There are no other small kings. There are no other sub-kingdoms in the kingdom. And what we see today is a lot of people building their own kingdom. Well, there's two expressions I like to use. A tall tree is the one that attracts the lightning. And if you put people up on a pedestal, you're daring the Lord to knock them off of it. And he will do so. Stuck-up people usually suffer some humiliating experience designed to deflate their ego and take them down and to use them as an example just as God did with David. It was pride that caused the fall of Satan. Shakespearean writer Christopher Marlowe at the time of Shakespeare in his play, The Tragedy of Dr. Faustus, describes Satan as Lucifer, aspiring pride and insolence for which God threw him from the face of heaven. Remember, the Lord said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Satan wasn't just kicked out of heaven. He was expelled. He was thrown out. God will not tolerate anybody who tries to take his seat or be God. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Folks, we're in a war. And he's going to come after you one of these ways I'm talking about, if he hasn't already. When people raise themselves up to position, or others raise them up because they have some talent, Superstar Christianity has is, is, is long been a plague on the church, and it should be dead by now. But we still do it. We still have a habit of raising people up. Somebody God uses somebody, and we think there's something special. When he could use a donkey to stop the madness of a prophet, just because God uses somebody doesn't make them all that special. And we can't punish pride. We can either admire it or fear it, but we can't punish it. We can't really do anything about it. But let me tell you what, our Heavenly Father can and will. Let him. He's pretty good at it. There's an example in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 5, a certain man named Ananias, who was with his wife Sapphira, sold some property. He brought part of the money to the apostles, claiming it was the full amount. With his wife's consent, he kept the rest. Then Peter said, Ananias, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit and you kept some of the money for yourself. He had revelation knowledge. The property was yours to sell or not to sell, as you wished. And after selling it, the money was also yours to give away. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. And as soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. And everyone who heard about it was terrified. Then some young men got up, wrapped him in a sheet, took him out, and buried him. About three hours later, his wife comes in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, was this the price you and your husband received for the land? Yes, she replied, that was the price. And Peter said, how could the two of you even think of conspiring to test the Spirit of the Lord like this? The young men who buried your husband are just outside the door, and they'll carry you out, too. And instantly she fell to the floor and died. When the young men came in and saw that she was dead, they carried her out, buried her beside her husband. Great fear gripped the entire church and everyone who had heard what happened. Folks, we need some Ananias and Sapphira events in the church. We need some people to be caught in their lies or their adultery or their, the things that they're doing behind closed doors or what they're doing with God's money or, or the things that are being said or not said. But we become so complacent, and the sin has become so easy, and Satan is infiltrated to the point that there are hirelings instead of pastors and shepherds. We don't see any of this. And really, what was this all about? You back up to Acts 4, verses 36 and 37. A Joseph, a Levite of Cyprus, surnamed Barnabas by the disciples, which means son of encouragement, 
He sold the field belonging to him, brought the money, and set at the apostles' feet. So Ananias and Sapphira wanted the same reputation that Barnabas had, pride. They wanted to be thought of just like he was, but they didn't have the character he had. They were seeking to serve themselves. That's why Peter said, why has Satan filled your heart? They were believers. They were a part of the community. And they easily succumbed to the temptations of greed and pride. And that word, why has Satan filled your heart, is the same Greek word about being filled with the Holy Spirit. Something is going to take possession. And it's either going to be the Spirit of the living God, or it's going to be Satan and the kingdom of darkness. It's one or the other. You can't have both. And when we choose to sin, we open the door to Satan. Ananias and Sapphira had wicked desires and thoughts and yielded to those temptations, and they were made an example of. John eight forty four. the Lord says about Satan, you are the, he said this to the Pharisees, you are of your father the devil, and it is your will to practice the desires which are characteristics of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. And does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks what is natural to him. For he is a liar and the father of lies and half-truths. There are people out there that are compulsive liars. They lie even when they don't have to lie. One very popular politician is like that. You know what that tells me? The spirit inside of him is not from God. The father of lies. Pride and arrogance is his most dangerous weapon. So we need to understand this because he's going to send somebody after you. He's going to send minions after you. He's going to try to trick you up, trick trip you up and trick you into doing things. So we need to understand. We need to understand who he is. The Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary says the New Testament mentions Satan 35 times. He's referred to as the tempter in Matthew 4, 3. He's the ruler of demons in Matthew 9, Matthew 12, Mark 3, and Luke 11. He's the evil one. He's the enemy. He's the father of lies. He's a murderer. Who did he murder? Cain killed Abel. Who inspired that to happen? And he's the ruler of this world. Paul referred to him as the god of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of the darkness of this age, and the tempter. That darkness you see out there right now, the influence of the kingdom of darkness, it's working with him to destroy this world, to destroy the church. And he's at work in trying to destroy America, but the only thing keeping the Antichrist at bay is America and the church. Take those two out, and the stage is clear. Paul warned the Corinthians that Satan may appear as an angel of light. In the epistles, he's an adversary. He's graphically portrayed as a roaring lion seeking to devour someone. He's the evil one. Revelation says he's the one who deceives an accuser, a serpent, a dragon. Folks, these are not pretty descriptions. There's nothing good in him. There is no redemption for him. He will never be let back into heaven. None of these fallen angels will be let back into heaven. None of these demons that serve them, that came out of the flood, that came out of the days of Noah, will be redeemed and see eternity except from the position of a lake of fire. We need to wake up. We need to figure out that unforgiveness is one of his tools. It's a tool of the enemy, and he will divide and conquer in any which way he can. And when we let the enemy into the camp, the end result is never good. So we must be on guard. We must guard for the efforts of the kingdoms of darkness's sphere of influence. Start seeing everything with supernatural eyes, seeing everything through a kingdom of God mindset in a kingdom of darkness mindset, understanding what they do and why they do what they do. 
Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand, withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand in truth. Stand in the light. Stand away from Satan and his schemes and the fallen and the demonic offspring right now in the name of Yeshua. I ask him to flash through your mind any area where they've gotten some ground in anything that you've said or done or planned to do or that they have gained some power or influence over you. We're hearing stories in the news about Chinese spies getting influence over political figures or people around them so that they can manipulate them and force them and coerce them. Satan's no different. Where do you think they got it from? It's what he does. He gets stuff on you, but he gets you to do it. Stop in the name of Jesus. Take a stand. Ask him to search you right now. Let that spotlight of the Holy Spirit search you, search out everything. Search out every hidden thing. Test our heart. Test our spirit. Take a hard, long look. Show us anywhere that we have let them in the camp. Because the time is coming, and even now is, folks. We're in a war. We're in a war that has tremendous, tremendous implications. The outcome will affect us in so many ways. We need people to stand. We need people to understand this kingdom war that we're in that we're in. And whatever your position is, whatever part you play in it, you can't do it compromised. Compromise has consequences. We're entering into Hanukkah. The season of Hanukkah, the festival of lights. Tremendous victories, tremendous battles. I've taught on it a number of times, but after it was all over, after God had delivered them, they compromised. They cut deals. And just like David, what God had done for them, they made deals with man, with other armies. And the end result was not good. Compromise always has consequences. So, Father, I'm praying for your children right now. I'm praying for myself right now, Lord. The bombarding of this warfare is wearing us down. The enemy is relentless. So first of all, I pray for a quickening in our mortal body. I pray for a wind of the Spirit to blow through us and rejuvenate us and encourage us. I pray for your word to come alive inside of us. Give us a hunger. Give us a hunger to study. Give us a hunger to pray. Give us a hunger to praise, to turn on anointed praise and worship music and sing, sing to you. We want to be dangerous to the kingdom of darkness, but we don't want to be dangerous to ourselves or those around us. So help us right now, Holy Spirit, Spirit of truth. Tell us the truth. Tell us the truth about us, but encourage us. Lift us up, empower us, and strengthen us. I pray all these things in Yeshua's name. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace, give you shalom. I'm Richard Grun, the Spin the Porch on Firefall Talk Radio.